Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices, Past and Present. Brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, www.ihconvention.com. The sermon you are going to hear on today's podcast is by P.O. Carpenter. It was preached at God's Bible School and College Camp Meeting in Cincinnati, Ohio, and it's titled, The Fruit of Holiness. Consolation in Christ. If any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. If you would ask me my opinion this afternoon as to what has been in recent years the most damaging effect on the holiness movement, I would say that our splits, our divisions, you know we've had split on top of split, and out of that we've had splinters of the splits. And then on top of that, we've had splinters of the splinters of the splits. Until we have splits of the splits and splinters of the splinters and splinters of the splits and splits of the splinters. Now don't ask me to go over that again. I know that isn't setting very well with some, but I can't help it. What did Paul say? He's talking here of being of one accord. Now, we won't all see alike on every line, but we don't have to fall out and have a sort of a knockdown, drag out. Amen, Brother Carpenter, amen. My friend Rob French, his wife gets after him for saying amen to his own preaching. And he says, Mother... I'm only encouraging myself in the Lord. (laughs) Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Now, I wonder if I do that. I don't look so pious. Do you? Let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now he doesn't mean there that we are to meddle around into other people's business and ask them how much you paid for that dress or suit. No, has a deeper meaning than that. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross. 
Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated. Thank you. And that includes Mrs. O'Hare. It's coming a day when she is going to confess out that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm aware of the fact that in an afternoon camp meeting service is a service, a hard service, to keep folk awake. Well, now, if you're sleepy, you just go ahead there and take your nap. You'll be refreshed for tonight. We wouldn't want to interfere with your afternoon siesta. But I want to speak on the fruit of holiness or the fruits of holiness as they were manifested or revealed in Jesus Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Mr. Weymouth's translation gives it, let the very spirit which was in Christ Jesus be in you also. It's frightening to me when I hear supposedly holiness preachers leave the entrance that holiness as a definite second work of grace is optional. It is not optional. It is essential. There are and will not be a single unsanctified person in heaven. God's not going to allow carnality into heaven. And when you think of those who have rejected holiness, the statistics are startling. There were 603,548 people crossed the Red Sea. But only two out of that number got over into Canaan. In rough figures, that would add up something like this. They had 43 funerals each day for 38 years to bury people that backed up and rejected and refused to obey God and go on in to the Canaan land. This is a striking injunction from the pen of Paul. And throughout the Pauline epistles, he was burdened. He was concerned. He was anxious. He uh, was solicitous that the church possess in experience what was provided for her in redemption. Of course, Paul does not mean here that we are to manifest the mind of Christ in all of its scope of wisdom, 
greatness and power. For he, Jesus, was infinite, but you and I are finite. He was unlimited, but we have our limitations. We're limited. He was all wise, but whether we like to acknowledge it or not, we are extremely ignorant. He never made a mistake. I don't know about you, but I've made serious ones. I'm glad there's a reverse gear in this business of serving the Lord. And we can back up. And we can even apologize. Someone has said that the three hardest words in the English language are, I was wrong. Or I am wrong. How long has it been since you heard somebody say that? Oh, it's much easier if we can go over and sit down, you know, alongside of someone and say, we were wrong. But it takes a big soul to say, I was wrong. How long has it been since you men ask your wife to forgive you? Oh, now, don't look at me that way. <laughs> and how long has it been Mother, since you asked perhaps the baby or the child to forgive you. Oh, preacher, I'm sanctified. I don't have to ask anyone's forgiveness. I'd like to talk with you after service. He never made a mistake. We have made serious ones. He never took a step in the wrong direction. But some of us have walked for years in the wrong way. So it does not mean that we are to possess the mind of Christ in quantity, but in quality. We could take a picture and go over here to the Atlantic Ocean, fill that picture out of that vast uh, body of water, but wouldn't it be foolish to come back and say, look, look, I brought the entire Atlantic back in my picture. Who would believe that? None of us. But we could say, look, I brought back the same that filled the Atlantic. And so we can bring our little warped, twisted, thunderstruck, lightning-splintered, earthen vessels, jugs up to the bulging, bursting fountains of divine grace. No, we won't impoverish God, but we can be filled with that that fills the divine. I think that's what John meant in chapter 1 and verse 16 when he said, And of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace. He means here by this that every grace that grew and blossomed and bore fruit in the life of our Lord that we can possess a like grace. Now, let us examine some of these fruits. I placed at the top of the list here the fruit or the grace of humility. He was the humble-minded Christ. If there's anything that's sickening and disgusting and repulsive is religious pride. Religious pride. It stems from that old incorrigible rebel, rebel carnality. I'm proud that I'm a Wesleyan. I'm proud that I'm a Nazarene. Oh, that 
Maybe, maybe a little hard on some Wesleyan and Nazarenes and others. Ego. But I'm happy. I'm proud that I'm a Christian. Would I shock you if I'd tell you and would you think that I'm uh, boastful when I say I'm proud that by the grace of God I'm a saint? a saint. No, Jesus was the humble-minded Christ. We have that in verses, uh, verses 6 and 7. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Here, the great apostle gives us a picture or his conception of our Lord's humiliation. He takes us back through the eternities to the pre-existing Christ. And there he declares that Christ was in the form of God. But in the presence of the call for earth's redemption, he took on him the form of a servant. He passed from sovereign to servant. From glory to Galilee. Oh, what humiliation. He also humbled himself and became obedient unto death. But that was not enough. Even the most ignominious death, the death of the cross. And if I understand it correctly, out of the two manners in which Rome executed their prisoners, this was the worst crucifixion. If I am to possess and manifest the mind of Christ, then I must be and I will be by the grace of God humble. There's certainly no place for self-importance or self-seeking here but a large place for the compassion of Christ in the service for humanity. These students around here have me about halfway under conviction. <laughs> I don't know where you are, but I'm glad you still have a praise. Maybe I need it. What do you mean, preacher? At every turn of the road, the opening of the door, there they are with their smile. I haven't heard a single one of them grumble or complain. Amen. Servants. They're your servants. My what service we're getting in the dining room, in the dormitory. Meet them out here on the ground, a smile. And some of them so weary and tired. I know they must be. The long hours, the hard work. But they're serving us. How much have you complained? Was that you that I heard grumbling in the hall? Isn't it quiet? It's, it's the effects of an afternoon service. 
He was the humble-minded Christ. Secondly, he was the pure-minded Christ. He flung a challenge to his accusers that thrills me in John chapter 8 and verse 46. Which of you convinceth me of sin? Oh, they lied on him. They reflected on his character. They made light of the village that he was brought up in. They poked fun at his scholastic attainments. But when the smoke was cleared away, he stands there, the unspotted, unscarred, unmarred, pure Christ. Which of you can hit? Hallelujah. Henceth me of sin. I suppose, Dr. Hicks, if you and I and others had sat on the district board of examiners when little old Joseph was brought in and that coat was spread out as a witness and that woman swore against him. We'd have said, as bad as we hate to do this, Joseph, we've just got to take your credentials and send him down there to the prison house. But one day he came out unscarred and unmarred and he's riding in the second chariot now you'll never be able to keep people from lying about you starting far-fetched tall stories but thanks be to God you can live by the grace of God as clean as a hound's tooth and straight as a gun barrel all wool and a yard wide grace of God. He was the pure-minded Christ. Peter said of him who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. His thoughts were pure. His motives were pure. Now, I don't have a television and I don't plan to get one. And I think they are quite a destructive something. Now, I expected those amens. In fact, I'm a little disappointed I didn't get more. You know, and I must be true to our hearts. The time has arrived when we can receive far more shouting and amen preaching against television. And I say again, it is an evil than on this matter of our motives and our attitudes and our spirit. That old sour, grumpy, grouchy, cross, cranky, harsh, raspy. If I knew what else to call it, I would. Spirit that's mean and cruel. I'm afraid those folk are going to miss the rapture and may miss heaven. His motives were pure. His desires were pure. His propensities were pure. 
His words were pure. We heard from this scholar this morning something along this line. His words were pure. These uh, off-color jokes, stories. When I was converted at an old-fashioned Methodist mourner's bench, a little old bare-legged, barefooted, backward farmer boy, I'd never heard these things mentioned. My best boyfriend went home with me. Oh, but you say that's different back there. Well, I know it's been a few years back. But just recently, my wife and I were in a prayer breakfast conducted by our district superintendent over on the eastern shore. And his good wife was telling of a miraculous conversion of a Roman Catholic man. And uh, he had never heard some of these things preached against. And so he was smoking a cigarette. And uh, sitting there reading his Bible, smoking a cigarette. I know some of you have already marked him off. Well, that's all right. But like that, the Holy Spirit said to him, he didn't know who it was. This don't go together. This don't work. Which one do you suppose he threw away? Yes, you have it. You have it. His life was transparent. If we are to be Christ-minded, then we will go forth among men as the light of the world and the salt of the earth and be a living rebuke to the veneer devilishness of this day. I'm so glad we don't have to be a hermit. I'm so glad that we don't have to go in behind four walls and lock the door. If there's anyone that has a right to go down Main Street, down Vine Street, in broad open daylight in Cincinnati, it is a sanctified man or woman. This old world is hungering and starving and thirsting and reaching and longing for something that's genuine. Go forth among men with purity, righteousness, saintliness, holiness. I had a tremendous time last, first of last June going out west on the Empire Builder out of Chicago. I believe God ordered that I should take that train and there was a little mother that was on that train that God knew she was on there with a sweet little boy making reservations for dinner I set the hour for five and I was seated here and in a little while this little lady came in and sat there and uh, of course she wanted to know uh, where I was going, and I asked her. She was going to Seattle. I was going to Spokane. What my business was, a minister, she said, I thought you were. And uh, what church? And I'm glad I wasn't ashamed of my denomination, I told her. And then I asked she. What her? She said, I don't know that you've ever heard 
of this church, the Covenant Church. Oh, yes, you have a large church in Minneapolis. And Dr. Paul Reese used to pastor that church. Oh, yes, and I've heard Dr. Reese. Well, I said it might be interesting to you that his, to know that his father ordained me. And I've had the privilege of working with Dr. Reese. And that opened the way. What a refreshing time it was. And I found that she was a hungry little lady. She was a Baptist lady, but she loved Jesus. And when I left her, I left her tears like little rivulets flowing down her cheeks. And I said, little lady, her home was broken. And I said, have you ever hoped to get your home back? It'll be through Jesus. Oh, she said, I know it. I know it. And I said, when you get out to Seattle, find the most spiritual group that you can find. Take this little boy. Oh, she said, I'm going to. No, we don't have to be hermits. We don't have to pass by on the other side in our priestly garbs, you know. But we can go over to that broken, blackened, bruised, bleeding, despairing, despondent, yes, wicked soul, and pour in a little oil and wine. The good Samaritan. He was the pure-minded Christ. Can you imagine Jesus alone sitting there on the well curb of Jacob talking to a wicked woman I confess to you that I suspect I would have excused myself for fear that some holiness people might have started a story on me. Amen. Amen. We need to watch our tongue. And my friend Percy Trueblood would say, children, are you listening? Again, he was the patient Christ. Oh, I know now. I'm skating on thin ice. He was the patient Christ. He was patient with his friends. And he was patient with his enemies. He held on to Simon Peter, the rumbunctious, outspoken, quick-spoken Peter. And said, I prayed for thee. He never gave Judas up until Judas said, how much will you give me for him? He never went to pieces under provocation and nothing explosive was found in his nature, even under fire. Now, I'm aware of the fact that you don't get your diploma, your cap and gown in patience when you get a pure heart. That's something that must be cultivated. And you know, I've met some folk. Oh, there's so many states here represented, I'm almost afraid to call just which one. That need to get into the cultivating business, this matter of patience. If you allow your impatience to continue and grow and grow, it'll grow into something else. 
Now, I'm going to say something right here that is almost hard to believe. But you know, I hear people say that claim to be saved and sanctified. I got so mad. That made me so mad. You don't mean that, do you? Oh, you say it's a habit. Well, for the blessed Jesus' sake, break that habit. And if it is not a habit, thank God there's room at Calvary. And there is a remedy in the blood. My doctor, taking my blood pressure. Now he said, P.O. sitting out there in the office, and I'm of the choleric uh, group, you know. I, <laughs> my wife's sitting down here smiling at me. Because I've got to get to the bus station an hour ahead of the bus. i got to get down there and breathe secondhand of smoke. <laughs> I just got to get there. I don't want to go late. And uh, I want to get to church on time. The time's come. If you don't get there on time, you won't get a back seat. <laughs> When I get home, uh, so much to do, you know, and, and you come up here to the green light, and there's a fellow trying to get his camel going, you know, and you've just got so many minutes, and, and uh, well, why don't that fellow go on? And you may toot your horn a little. And I've had him to say, now practice what you preach. And there's only one thing to say, and that's to say amen. But, but it made me so mad. You don't mean that. No, no, surely not. If you get mad, you have an incorrigible something that's going to get you into deep, dangerous difficulty and trouble. I preached to a lady I did not meet her personally. They pointed her out. And that little lady refused to go on into holiness. And seated at the telephone, her little three-year-old, four-year-old child came up, tugged at the mother's skirt. She pushed it away and, and uh, came back and she pushed it away. And the third, maybe the fourth time, that old incorrigible something sprang into action. That mother took the receiver down from her ear, smashed it down over that little tyke's head and burst its little skull. And it died bleeding at her feet. You say you won't do that. Somebody said, I get impatient and even mad, but I'm all over it in a minute. Honey, the San Francisco, California earthquake only lasted two minutes, but it left things in a mess. Those little momentary heartbreaks. I think of John T. Hatfield. Converted. Blessed. Springtime. 
And the old hymn went to set it. He and Mrs. Hatfield with a dozen nice eggs went out, you know, and he took the old hen from the nest and she clucked and he stroked her feathers and everything was beautiful. Mrs. Hatfield made a nice nest and placed the eggs there and then Uncle John set Mrs. Hen over on the nest and she stood up. He pushed her down very gentlemanly-like, and she stood up. And he pushed her down with a little more authority, and she stood up. Mrs. Hatfield heard the thunder and saw the lightning, and she slipped out and went in the house. Well and good she did, for in a little while there was not a sound egg left in the nest. The old hen was divested of a lot of feathers and Uncle John didn't have any religion left. Didn't take long. Didn't take long. It was Uncle Buddy, you know, that tried to get the balking mule to move, but he wouldn't. The mule was going to dinner and Uncle Bud was going to the other end of the field. And they didn't go anywhere. And that old something rose up, and Uncle Bud left the plow handles, ran around and got a hold of the bridle and pulled the poor old mule down and made a half moon in his ear with his own teeth. About all the old mule did was shake his head a little. But Uncle Bud went over in the fence corner and spent quite a while trying to get back in proper relationship with God and get mule teeth, uh, hair out of his teeth. <laughs> Those momentary heartbreaks. He was the Christ of love. Love. Love was the impulse of his services, his sorrow, his suffering. He had compassion on the multitudes, wept over the city, sought the lost sheep, prayed for his murderers, and rescued the dying thief from the unfolding jaws of damnation. And John said, having loved his own, he loved them unto the end. Oh God, fill me with that love. Why did he serve? He loved. Why did he sorrow, weep? He loved. And why did he suffer? Because he loved. Again, he was the unselfish Christ. He said, I came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. There is nothing more subtle than selfishness. This poisonous element is manifested in so many, many ways. It's manifested in self-will. I'm going to have my way. If the whole thing blows up, and it usually does, self-will in that it wants its own way and plan. Isn't it sad? To think that some churches are split just over who's going to play the organ or the piano. 
or the color of the hymnal. Yes. I wonder when we'll grow up. Isn't it quiet? Oh, I know what's happening. Some of you are taking that siesta. Self-will. I'm going to have my way. It's manifested in self-indulgence. Self-complacency. Self-glory. I worked with one preacher who said, I have 20 sermons that I'm not afraid to take anywhere. And I thought, dear Lord, I'm almost afraid to try to go anywhere with all that I have. Self-confidence. Self-consciousness. Oh, I know they were talking about me. Oh, of course, I didn't. Uh, I just didn't hear them mention my name. But they looked right over in my direction. Oh, how important we can be sometimes. And I know the preacher was preaching right at me because he pointed his finger right where I was. And actually, he was pointing right down the middle aisle. I was preaching in North Carolina. And I made the statement over here on my left is uh, a lady that, uh, and I described some things. No, no, they hadn't told me anything. I don't allow my head to be a garbage can for a lot of gossip. I'm going over and talk to the evangelist so he'll know how to preach. No, you want this one. No. And I was back at the door with the pastor greeting the folk and the lady came along and there was a number of steps. She went down those steps and about half a block turned around and came back and she said, Preacher, was I the lady that you were talking about over there? I said, Sister, I didn't even know you were in the church. Self in or self-consciousness. Self-importance. Self-seeking. One fellow, and he was driving a Cadillac. He had quite a lot of money. Came over, oh, 20 or 30 miles on Sunday morning where I was preaching in a meeting over in Indiana. And as I came up to the church and saw that big Cadillac, I thought, my, maybe we have the mayor here this morning. And I went in and I saw this gentleman and I thought, I wonder, evidently he has some friends here or some of his family. But after the service, he came around with a sort of a, a sob story. And he said, I just, I had to come over this morning. I, I had to get some help. I thought the dear man had uh, something terrible had happened. You know what had happened? They voted him off of the board the week before. He'd been on for 20 years, and I think that was 19 too long. <laughs> he was the aggressive Christ. At the beginning of his life, he said, I must be about my father's business. 
at the close of his life, he said, I have finished the work thou gavest me to do. And my friend, that last passage bothers me no little. Am I getting the job done that is marked out for me to do? Between those two statements, he lived a life of unceasing service for those who were even unappreciative. And if we have the mind of Christ, we too will have the blood earnestness and the zeal that was his. I don't know who ever got the idea that to be sanctified holy, we have to be small and little and poor and deserted. No, we're not poor and deserted even before we're con before we're sanctified, we're happy and converted. And if you'll read the first 18 chapters of the Acts of the Apostles, you'll discover that there is progress, forward march, success, victory. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. Keep passing it on, keep passing it on.